Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right. Good morning, church. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. And we will continue through our study in the Gospel of Mark. And really, we're going to be finishing that up in the next few weeks. And it's been, it's been a wonderful time. Uh, I got a question for you. Anyone here have pet peeves? Things just drive you crazy, right? There's just things that annoy you. Maybe it's people who chew loud, right? Yeah, don't, yeah. Maybe it's people who chew with their mouth open. Uh, I've developed a new one. My wife was so kind to tell me that I, I do something that's a pet peeve now. And uh, she said that I, I will hit my uh, fork on my teeth sometimes and she thinks that's just the worst thing ever. And so uh, she was kind to let me know that. She's in nursery today, so I can talk about her. Um, yeah, so there's some things that just drive you crazy. Maybe it's people who double dip their chip, right, in the salsa. That's a no-no. Uh, yeah, there's, there's certain things. Well, there's one thing for me that I, I don't know if it, if it really applies as a pet peeve, but I, I cannot stand spoilers, right? When, when you want to see a movie and you want to see it really bad and someone's like, oh, I've already seen that. Let me tell you what happens. And you're like, no, 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 don't tell me. Don't tell me. I don't want any spoilers at all. Uh, well, I'm going to give you a spoiler this morning about a movie, okay? And so if you've seen this movie, I'm, I'm sorry. If you haven't seen this movie, I'm really sorry. It's the movie Titanic. And I, I know some of you probably haven't seen it. Uh, spoiler alert, the, the ship sinks, okay? So uh, just be ready for that one. It's coming. I had a friend uh, back um, when that came out. He went and saw the movie four times. And I was like, man, what do you think? It's going to have a different ending? Like, you think, like, it's just going to change? Like, it's going to happen. Well, in the story, it's told from this older lady who had been on the, on the ship, and she's telling her memory of it. So it's kind of done in flashback, right? So she'll be talking on the boat, and then there'll be a flashback scene. Well, when we get into Mark, this is the reason I'm telling you this, is that there's a moment where all of a sudden it shifts back four days to a flashback. And so I don't want you to be confused about that because the Gospel of John, as we'll see, will clear that up. But there's going to be a flashback that takes place as we're talking this morning about sacrifice, selfishness, and the Last Supper. And so I don't know if you noticed, there should have been one of these near you somewhere on the pew when you came in this morning. Uh, In the final part of the sermon, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And so uh, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake uh, with us in that. Uh, If you did not get one of these, um, there should be some more back out there on on the table. It will not uh, startle me. I'll, I'll just keep going. If you get up and go get it and come back in, I'll never even notice. I will not call you out. So please uh, go ahead and go get that. Now you're really scared because you're like, he might call me out. No. Um, so you're, you're in any one of these. So we invite you to be partaking that uh, this morning as we get into Mark chapter 14. So let's pray and then let's jump in. Father, we do come to you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you've cared enough to allow us to have this Uh, in our hands, to be able to read it, to be able to understand it, to be able to um, be led by your spirit, to have a full understanding of of what it meant that you would come, that you would live in the flesh, and that you would die on our behalf so that we could have everlasting life, that you would be the ultimate sacrifice, and you would take away sins. So Father, this morning as we get into the gospel message, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears, and open our eyes, that our lives would be lived in a life of worship to you because of gratitude and thanksgiving and delight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. First thing I want you to see is the extravagant sacrifice of worship. 
as we jump in, Mark chapter 14, 1 through 3, you're going to see uh, the beginning piece here where it's picking up where we left off, where they're in the final week, the Passion Week of Jesus' life. And uh, he's been in the temple for a few days. He's done some teaching. He's flipped over some tables. He's done those things. He moved out and went to the Mount of Olives, gave his Olivet Discourse. And so we're going to pick up right here in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, this part, verse 3, is the flashback. We know this is the flashback because, like I said, in John's gospel, we get told that it's six days before the Passover. So this is a four-day flashback. We're flashing back four days. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining it with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we see that this is a flashback. This is given in contrast of what we're about to see take place with Judas, is that there is this extravagant sacrifice of worship that's about to take place. And she's about to pour out this very expensive perfume on Jesus Christ. Now, what's going on here? I want you to think about this is in Bethany, and you've got at this dinner table a guy named Simon who used to be a leper. He used to be a leper because if you're a leper in those times, you weren't allowed to be at dinner with people because you had to yell, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, and then you were excommunicated. So you've got a guy who used to be a leper, and you've got Lazarus, who used to be dead, sitting at the table, right? This is an interesting dinner table, and Jesus is there, and this is a dinner of thanksgiving, I mean, now we're in November. We're headed that direction, right? This is a Thanksgiving dinner. This is one of praise. This is one of gratitude and delight. This is one that says, Jesus, we're all gathered here together because we were sick and we were dead and you've made us alive. This is what believers do when they gather at the table of the Lord. They all gather together saying, look, I was sick. I was an outcast. I was dead in my sin. And now we're gathered together because of Jesus Christ. And so this is worship. Yeah? Yeah, this is what's happening here. There is worship taking place. Martha is there, and she's serving. She's serving Jesus out of sacrifice, out of sacrificial love. She's serving this dinner table, not because she feels like she needs to, but because it's what she wants to do. She wants to be serving Jesus because of what he's done. Mary's there, and she's worshiping Jesus out of sacrificial love. She's literally about to pour herself out on Christ, just saying, look, I, I will give you everything I have because I am so appreciative of who you are and what you've done. Both are displaying a delight in Jesus, not an act of duty for Jesus. Now, there's, there's the difference. There's a lot of times we'll gather out of duty. There's a lot of times we'll serve Christ because that's what we're supposed to do. There's a lot of times we'll actually worship and sing and go through motions because, well, it's, that's what we do on Sundays, right? But they were doing out of delight. 
out of the overflow of their heart, they were engaged in serving and worshiping Jesus Christ. As we gather here today, as we gather, we do so out of an overflowing delight of who Jesus Christ is, not out of duty, not because this is what we're supposed to do, not because this is what Sundays involve. We do it because there's just overwhelming delight that, hey, I was once dead and now I'm alive. I was once sick and alienated and an outcast, and he's brought me back in. And I can sit at the table of the Lord and be gathered with other believers who were lost and now are found. This is worship. Does your worship and service in the kingdom feel more like a duty or delight? Because, because I, you know, I, we've been talking about this, and I've been talking to the elders about this, and I've been talking about, to the staff about this. I've been talking to other pastors of other churches about this. This COVID thing, I don't know if you know there's a COVID thing going on, right? No, spoiler alert, there's a COVID thing going on, right? There's this thing going on, and it has thrown the world a curveball, in case you're not watching the news. And that curveball has affected the local church. And I'll tell you why. Because it's been more difficult. It's been more challenging to be present. It's been more challenging to get our focus not on, off of duty, but on delight. Delight in the Lord that we can gather together as believers in worship. Now, and, and I'll say this for those who are watching online, there are many in our church congregation that just can't be here because they're high risk. And we, we long to see you again. Amen? We miss your face, and we know that you would be here if you could. But as we gather, we gather out of delight. So maybe the better question is, do you feel a desire to serve and worship because of the delight you have in Christ? Is there this overwhelming delight when you think about Jesus Christ that leads you to want to serve? I can't just sit. i got to serve. I can't just sit. I've got to pour myself out and worship. I can't hold anything back because of who Jesus Christ is. This is the picture that we see from Mary and Martha as they sit at this table. So I'm going to give you some key principles of worship that we see from this. The first key principle of worship is sacrifice. There is a sacrifice that takes place in worship. Paul says this in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship entails sacrifice. There's always something that must be given for it to be worship. Mary shows us what is given, and she's going to give a very expensive ointment or perfume to Jesus. There's a sacrifice. The second principle of worship is significance. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This is in John. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Significance. There was a significant gift that was given. There was a significant sacrifice in this worship that took place. The value of this perfume suggests a couple of things to us. It, it suggests, number one, that most likely this was a family heirloom that was passed down from one generation to another, from mother to daughter. And it was probably somewhere between 12 to 15 ounces of liquid because it was a pound is what the Gospel of John says. And it was worth a year's income. This is a significant sacrifice and gift. Number two, it was rare. 
because it was imported from India. It was rare in an imported treasure that was not easily to come by because of the nard comes from a rare plant found only in India. So it's not like you could go out and get more of this. It wasn't at your local Walmart or Target or, you know, um, Aldi. I don't know, right? It wasn't in one of these places. Is, does Aldi have perfume? Probably not. You never know. So you, you kind of take this idea and you're like, this is an extravagant sacrifice. This is a, a significant gift. And we read this, and I don't know about you, but this is me. I read scripture a lot of times. I go, well, yeah. Yes, she did. Of course she poured it all out because it's Jesus, right? Look, look at what's going on here. So let's take this in today's standards. Let's take this perfume, Chanel. You have to say it like that because of the commercials. Chanel number five, right? This is one of their high-end perfumes that has become a highly sought-after fragrance and treasure for the perfume connoisseur. If you're a perfume connoisseur, just be proud of yourself. As well as the fragrance collector, okay? I'd, I like to title myself as a perfume connoisseur. This perfume, get this, this perfume sells for $4,200 per ounce. And I just happen to have some here today. Just kidding, I don't, right? No. Who in the world would buy a perfume that's $4,200 per ounce? So this means if there was a 12-ounce bottle here, it would cost over $50,000, Woo, Chanel number five. <laughs> smells so good. Now, if you were at dinner and someone busted out a bottle of Chanel number five, you just have to say it that way, and smashed it all over one person was like, let me make you smell great. You would be like, what are you doing? That's $50,000. Would you not? What a waste. And that's exactly what takes place here. She takes this significant gift and pours it out on Jesus. Mary not only gives a significant sacrifice materialistically, but she gives a significant amount spiritually. This outward representation of worship shows where her heart is. It shows how much she values Jesus over the things of this world. She poured all of it out on him. She didn't leave any for herself or for another special occasion. No, she poured it all out on Jesus, and she holds nothing back. What if worship was like that? What if worship was where we don't hold anything back because we see the, uh, the extreme value of Jesus? I'm not holding anything. I'm, I'm not holding anything back. This is it. This is all I've got. This is such a significant gesture of love and worship. And our sacrifice and surrender, are we guilty of holding back just a little for ourselves? Do you ever hold back just a little bit? Do we offer Jesus just enough so we don't feel guilty? Well, I'll do this out of duty because this is what I'm supposed to do. Or do we come and serve and worship out of delight? Do we worship out of duty or delight? They're worshiping that day, and they were a picture of worship. And this is how the story goes. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them for them. 
but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before the burial, for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You see, they can question her actions, but they can't question her heart. There's not one person in that room that could question what was more valuable to Mary, her expensive heirloom or her Lord. No one can question where Jesus ranks in her heart because she has outwardly displayed an extravagant sacrifice of love and worship. Her timing was perfect. It's four days before where we're reading here in Mark. This is the week of his death, and she is anointing his body for burial. Her timing is perfect. Her, her usage is precise. She uses what she has at the opportune time. She doesn't wait for another time. This is it. This is the most important time in my life. I've got Jesus right here, and I'm going to pour it all out on him. And her amount was a proportionate to the recipient. Jesus Christ deserves every bit. To have withheld some would not have seemed right, would it? To withheld something, well, let me just give you just a little splash. It doesn't show how significant Jesus is. Spurgeon says, is anything wasted which is all for Jesus? It might rather seem as if all would be wasted which was not given to him. Our lives, it seems, would be wasted if they weren't given to him fully. The third key principle is this, sustainability. It lasted. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. Her act of worship impacted everyone in the room. Now, let me just, let me just put that in today's standards. Our personal acts of worship should impact those around us. There should be something so remarkable about the extravagant gift of worship that we give that everyone else in the room is infected by it. Like, whoa. Not only that, it says in verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, in the United States 2,000 years from now, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Her act of worship not only lingered in the room for a few hours or maybe even a day, her act of worship is still being talked about 2,000 years later because it's so extravagant. It's so significant. It's such a sacrifice. Extravagant worship is both emotional and motivational. Yes, it's emotional for the person, but it's motivational for those who encounter it and see it. If our worship on Sundays isn't evident in our attitude and actions of obedience on Monday through Saturday, then we really didn't worship. We might have had an emotional experience. But worship is both emotional and motivational. It motivates us to live a life of obedience to Jesus Christ Monday through Saturday. It's not just singing songs on Sunday. Sustaining worship results in an increased love for God and obedience to his word. So let me explain it to you this way. Understanding the overwhelming value of Christ, number one, when we understand how valuable Christ is, it leads to an overwhelming love for Christ. If we don't have an overwhelming love for Christ, then we haven't quite grasped how valuable he is. So understanding the value of Christ leads to an overwhelming love of Christ that motivates us to a delightful worship, service, and obedience for Christ. Valuing Christ above all else. That's what Mary was doing. 
This is what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul says. Look, I understand the value of Christ because I consider all things rubbish. Even if it's a $50,000 bottle of perfume, that is nothing compared to worshiping Jesus Christ and knowing him. All value leads to a love of Christ. Ephesians, Paul would say this in 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's a love of God that surpasses knowledge. This value in Christ leads to a love of Christ, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a prayer. The value of Christ leads to the love of Christ, which leads to the obedience of Christ. John would say it this way in John 14, or Jesus would say this in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. There is a progression of understanding the value of God that leads to the love of God. And the love of God leads to the obedience of God. And really the only reliable means of measuring our love for God and our worship of God is to examine whether or not we obey God. I say all that to tell you this. You want to know whether or not you value Jesus Christ? It's evident in your obedience. You, you want to know whether or not you have genuine worship that's sacrificial and, and sustainable and, and, uh, and all those things? It's that he is valued so much that you're willing to sacrifice obey, pour yourself out before him. This story is a flashback story because it's in contrast of what we're about to see in the life of Judas. Judas is now stepping into the scene and revealing his true nature. So the second thing is the convenient selfishness of wealth. You've seen this extravagant sacrifice of worship, which gave $50,000. Now you're going to see this convenient selfishness that longs for wealth. So here we go, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And, they, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. 
and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This word opportunity means a time of convenience. What an interesting thought that Judas is denying Jesus, and now he's just kind of waiting for an opportune time. He's waiting for a time of convenience. I think that convenience is a stepping stone towards faithlessness. When we live for convenience, it's the primary issue that leads towards faithlessness. When we begin to do what's convenient for me rather than what's a sacrifice for me, we're not, we're not living a life of worship. We're living a life of faithlessness. Living for what is convenient will keep us from the Great Commission. You know why? Because it's never going to be convenient to tell people about Jesus. And you and I know this. We're in a conversation, and we know that opportunity's coming up where someone has led us. like They're like laying it out like, here's, the, here's where Jesus is inserted into the conversation. And it's not really convenient because it might be a little awkward. It's never going to be convenient to be part of the Great Commission. It's never going to be convenient to leave your house and your home and your family and your kids and say, hey, I'm going here for a period of time to tell people about Christ. It's never convenient. Living for convenience will keep us from worshiping Jesus, really worshiping Jesus. Living for convenience will cause us to justify selfish decisions over sacrificial obedience. Living for convenience will cause us to make selfish decisions. Judas here is the epitome of convenient selfishness disguised as Christian service. And this is all too common. He's the epitome of convenient selfishness disguised as Christian service. Matthew's gospel tells it this way in, verse, in chapter 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas's motivation was simply money. What will you give me to betray Jesus? It is the pursuit of convenience in cash. And his price for betraying Jesus was only 30 pieces of silver. In contrast, Mary has just poured out $50,000 worth of perfume to show her, show the immense value Jesus has in her heart. And now Judas sells Jesus for a cheap $100. This is how little he valued Jesus. And yet he's followed him for years. Exodus 21, 32 says, If an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give the master 30 shekels. Therefore, we see that Jesus is sold as the price of a slave. This is how much value Jesus holds in the heart of Judas, one who's followed him for years. For Judas, Jesus was a piece of property that was no longer useful to him. For Judas, Jesus was a relationship that no longer benefited him. Oftentimes, people walk away from Christ and deny Christ because Jesus no longer benefits them. He's no longer useful to them. First John would tell us this in chapter 2, 18 through 19. Children, it is the last hour and you have heard that antichrists are coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out 
that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what John is saying here is, look, look, there's several people who are going to be in the family of faith, followers of Jesus, spend time there, that then live an anti or instead of Christ lifestyle. Well, instead of Christ, I'll choose this. It shows that Jesus is no longer useful for their selfish gain, and so they sell out and they move on. This is, this is the phrase. This is the phrase, and this is how it sounds, okay? Beware of this phrase. I just need to do what's right for me. You ever heard anybody say that? I'm going to deny Christ because that's no longer of value to me. It no longer benefits me. I just need to do what's right for me. They'll, they'll say, I don't really care what this Bible says at this particular situation because I really just need to do what's right for me. Judas, at some point along the way, said, you know what? I don't really care. Jesus is healing all these people. Simon the leper's sitting there. Uh, Lazarus, he was dead like two days ago. Like, what is going on here? But you know what? I just need to do what's right for me. John chapter 12, 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was, in, what was put in it. There was a heart issue that was developing over time for Judas. And one day, Judas decided, you know what? I just need to do what's right for me. Let me tell you something. When we deny Jesus Christ with our actions, typically it's not just one day we show up and do that. It's because there's been a heart issue that's been growing for a period of time. And our actions have shown it. And then one day we say, you know what? This is no longer, this is no longer what holds me accountable. I just need to do what's right for me. The thing about Judas is that he didn't value Jesus as much as he valued himself. The thing about being a follower of Jesus Christ is that at some point you have to value Jesus more than you value yourself. You have to value Jesus more than you value what you want or what you hold or what you think you should hold. I heard about a story about a guy who um, was dressing up for Halloween and he was on his way to a costume party. And so um, he dressed up as Satan. He decided, you know what, I'm just going to paint myself red and I'm going to have a pitchfork and I'm going to have horns and a little tail and I'm just going to dress up as Satan and I'm going to go to this party. And as he was walking to the party, uh, a huge thunderstorm just popped up. And so he ducked into the nearest building he could get into, which happened to be a church, and they were holding revival services. And so he came into the sanctuary dressed up as Satan and everybody was just going like, ah! They all ran out except for one guy who got caught on his, with his pants on the pew. And that guy couldn't get away, couldn't get away. And, and this guy dressed as Satan walked over to him. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Satan, let's just get one thing clear. I've been going to this church for 25 years, and I've been on your side the whole time. That's not a true story. Okay, I hope it's not a true story. That'd be awful, you know? But here's the deal. There's, there's often times where people who have been in church their whole lives get to a point where they say, you know what? I've really been selfish the whole time. If we're going to be honest, I've been on your side the whole time because I've been selfish. I've been doing everything for myself because I just need to do what's right for me. Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We see here that God's sovereignty and his will takes place even through the means of a sinful man, Judas. Jesus was prophesied to be the one who would be be a sacrifice and take away the sins of the world. And it went through the process of human failure. God works his will in and through the choices of human creatures, whether good or bad. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. But God brought good out of evil, redemption out of disloyalty, and his will out of human willful disobedience. Jesus is in complete control, and he deserves to be worshiped. Here's the final thing the willful sacrifice of God. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. We see here that Jesus, he sends ahead two disciples. We learned from Luke's gospel that this was Peter and John. They prepare the meal. Everything is set. The stage is set. They know exactly what they're doing because God's timing is perfect. God knows exactly what he's doing. The preparations are being made. He's gone ahead of them. He said, look, there's going to be a guy carrying a water jar. This is unusual. Men didn't carry water jars back in those days. And so this guy would have stood out. And so they followed this man and they found it. Everything has been laid out. Everything is ready. And they begin to prepare the meal. And the symbolism that takes place that night cannot be missed. Jesus is instituting a new Passover for all believers to remember and to celebrate. He's going to share in the meal that represents the fact that Israel was led out of Egypt, that there was a Passover, that the death angel showed up, but there was blood on the doorpost, and their firstborns were not killed. And they were set free from the bondage of sin and slavery that was in Egypt, and they were, they were to be brought out towards a promised land. All of this symbolism, the, the lamb that was to be slain, was to be spotless. It was to be, it was to be killed and roasted and eaten in its entirety. And they were to be ready. And now Jesus is taking this meal to show them that, hey, the true Passover, all of this symbolism points to what is happening here. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is going to break the bread and tell them that this is his body that's broken for them. Verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. This is the day that the lamb was to be sacrificed. 
Jesus is represented by both the unleavened bread and the lamb because his body had no sin. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Yeast or leaven was representative of sin. Jesus had no sin. He was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was without sin and he was without defect. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sin. He is the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. As some would say, he's the substitutionary atonement. The word atonement means being at one or being reconciled. Jesus is the one that brings us back into a right relationship with God the Father. In verse 18, this is remarkable. And when they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one after another, Is it I? Am I the one? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Am I the one that's going to be selfish? Am I the one that's going to say, I just need to do what's right for me? They all took time for introspection. So as we end the service, as we're coming in on the end, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together, the, the bread and the juice. The bread representing his body that was broken for us, and the juice representing the blood that was shed for us so that we could be one with God the Father. So they are taking a time for introspection, and I think we too should take a time for introspection. I'm going to invite Chip and the praise team to come up. I'm going to read these verses out of 1 Corinthians 11, through 23, uh, 11, 23 through 29. This is Paul saying, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink it, as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So at this time, I would like to have us all pause. And to think. To examine. Parents, fathers, mothers, if you have children in the pew with you right now, this is a perfect opportunity for you to explain what these, what these represent. And why will we partake of these? This is your time to demonstrate discipleship to your kids. But I would ask that you would take all the thoughts that we've had about worship and sacrifice and extravagant gifts and delight in Jesus. And you would look at that in comparison to Judas and you would examine yourself and say, is there anything in my heart? Is there anything in my heart that's not given you every bit? And take that time to confess before partaking of the Lord's Supper where he gave everything for you. Can you pause? Can we pray?
Verse 22 says, And when they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. If you're a believer in Christ, I invite you to take and eat, for this is his body. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Will you take and will you drink? I want you to see that Jesus brought the meal to a close by refusing to drink the fourth cup the cup of consummation. Jesus led them to drink the third cup and then ended the meal. And he says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus drank the cup of redemption. This cup signifies the slaying of the Passover lamb that spared the Israelites from the plague of the death of the firstborn. Jesus did drink the cup of wrath. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. And Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. It is by God's sacrifice that we are called family, that one day we will sit at the table of the Lord and we will partake as the bride of Christ. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.